Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Lord, let your word have its due effect on us. We pray, Lord, that you would use it to revive our hearts, that you would use it to make us wiser. God, that you'd use it to bring about joy in our hearts. If there's things holding us back from walking in the joy of the Lord, from rejoicing in the Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would use your word to dislodge these things. And Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our eyes. Holy Spirit, would you illumine this word so that we can see it for what it's meant to be. Lord, would you press it in on our hearts and let this word have its due effect. We hold our hearts open to you, Lord. Show us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the sixth commandment in our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. This commandment, you shall not murder. Murder. What is it? What is it? Where does it? Wait, I'm cutting that part out. What is it? Why is it wrong? And how do we avoid it? Okay, those are the three questions I want to ask. What is it? Why is it wrong? And how can we avoid it? There might be more here than meets the eye when we think about our understanding of what it means to murder. So let's dive in together asking, what is it? And really first asking, well, what is what, what murder isn't? Start there. Murder is not the killing of an animal. Thank God, or we'd be in big trouble in Pierce because we like hunting here, right? That's killing animals, not killing human beings. So murder is not the killing of an animal. Murder is not the killing of a justly condemned criminal, also known as capital punishment or the death penalty. Think of a text like Romans 13 verse 4 when it talks about how God gives the sword to governing authorities. And it says this in Romans 13, 7, for he, speaking of governing authorities, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Go on. Murder is not, you could say, the killing of burglars or attackers in self-defense. Even two chapters later in Exodus, chapter 22, verse 2, it says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And that is for the one who struck him down. Or you could say that murder is not the killing in the just cause of war. Even within the book of the law, we see just war being waged. Um, and even an interesting text in the New Testament, like Luke chapter 3, verse 14, where a soldier comes up to John the Baptist and he asks, And we, what shall we do? We soldiers. And he said to them, do not exhort, extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He doesn't say stop being a soldier and all that entails. Instead, he says, 
be an honorable soldier. Be an upright soldier, unlike some of the rest of them, right? You could also say murder is not the killing by accident. Where there's no plan, no intention to kill, no carelessness involved. Like, for example, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 5, you got two men out making wood and an axe handle flies off one of the axes, hits the other one in the head, he dies. It's a tragic event. It's a true accident. This is not murder. Even though it is the killing of a human being, it's not, wouldn't be called murder, biblically speaking. So it's not the killing of an animal. It's not, it's not, um, it's not the death penalty. It's not, um, self-defense. It's not the just cause of war. It's not killing by accident. Then what is it? What is murder? Murder is the unlawful killing of a human being. Murder is the unlawful killing of a human being. Whether it be killing oneself, suicide, that's murder. That's self-murder, a breach of the sixth commandment. Unlawful killing of a human being, whether it's killing oneself or whether it be the unlawful and direct killing of someone else. Think the story of Cain and Abel, right? This direct killing of someone else where Cain kills Abel or whether it be the unlawful and indirect killing of someone else. Remember, David commissioned the death of Uriah so he could have his wife. Or Pilate consenting to the death of Jesus even though he already declared Jesus innocent. There's blood on his hands. Or people who cover up a murder and are therefore complicit in it, even though if they don't directly do it. So what else could we say murder is? Along in the same vein, we're talking about the unlawful killing of a human being. It's important for us to take, to recognize that it can take certain forms in a culture like ours. And Bobby happened to mention it um, earlier, but think about um, abortion and euthanasia. Both of these are the unlawful taking of a human life. Abortion, taking and snuffing out the life of a little image bearer of God in the womb. It is the killing, the unlawful killing. No matter what a state might say or no matter what a country might say, in God's eyes, it is an unlawful killing of a human being. Or take euthanasia, right? can happen in different ways, right? It can happen by a form of suicide, someone taking a lethal dose of something themselves or with the help of someone else, cloaked in a claim of compassion. But it's someone else helping someone else take or end their lives to, as it were, put them out of their misery as if we were talking about shooting a horse or a vet putting a pet to sleep. Murder takes multiple forms. We could also talk about murder in the sense of dealing with negligence or carelessness or recklessness. In the Old Testament, you see an example like this where a man knows his ox is prone to want to gore people. And instead of dealing appropriately with his ox, he just kind of lets it go, you know. And then eventually the ox kills somebody, gores somebody, and that would be murder because of his negligence. And this takes you know, forms in our modern day. I bet you could think of some off the top of your head. 
like a drunk driver, right? Didn't intend to kill anybody. But by a reckless action like that, sometimes it only takes one time. Someone's gone. Or one that I've been convicted about. Can you guess what it is? Oh, what are you saying about me, Stan? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. Sorry. That's, I'm coming to that, but um, I'm everything about like texting and driving. Right? Texting and driving. It's like, oh, I just sneak one in there. The one time. I've been really convicted. Like the one time. I'm f- focused on my phone or something like that. And if I were to end a life, blood would be on my hands because of my carelessness in a moment like that. What am I prioritizing? So even look this up online to see how this kind of thing would be treated, like texting while driving if it ends up in the death of another human being. Fines for these crimes can range from a maximum of $1,000 for neglect homicide with a motor with a uh with a negligent homicide with a motor vehicle to a maximum of ten thousand dollars for second degree murder manslaughter it's intense even though there's no intent to kill but it's just a carelessness there but with all these examples right of whether it be suicide or direct or indirect killing whether there's, there's a lot of intent or little intent or or even um, you know, just from carelessness, it can take a lot of different forms, but murder is more than this, right? Murder is deeper and some, and sometimes more subtle than this. Jesus teaches us, and many of you already know where I'm going. He teaches us that unrighteous anger in the heart is a degree of murder. Matthew chapter five, verses 21 and 22. Jesus speaking about this very commandment. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Sounds about right. What we've been talking about, right? But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus directly connects anger in the heart, this attitude of the heart as a degree of murder in God's eyes. In one sense, he brings us to the heart of this commandment. And his disciple John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, summarizes the same idea when he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Listen to that. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I was thinking as I was considering the sermon that we often, on this point, think a lot along the same lines as the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus, uh, he comes to Jesus. He's having this interaction with Jesus. How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus is saying, well, we'll keep the commands. And it's like, well, which ones? And Jesus lists them off from the second table of the law, right? Um, the last half of the, the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus says, you shall not murder. First thing he quotes, for you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And the rich young ruler's response was, I've kept all these from my youth. Now we've been studying the Ten Commandments. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly batting a thousand right now when it comes to walking through these commandments and taking them to the heart and understanding more of the depth of these commandments and God's expectations. And so the rich young ruler, on a surface level, you know, never taken another man's wife. I've never, I've never killed anybody in cold blood. You know, just looking at it on a surface level. But Jesus is obviously drawing out a deeper point that would be worth exploring more at some point. But just to point out here that we often get the same mindset. Like, on the, yeah, I've kept all these from my youth. But really in the depth, when Jesus takes it to another level to help us understand with clarity what's expected, he does this in a place like Mark 7.21. You know the verse? For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery. These things come out of the heart. And this is why James, half-brother of Jesus, in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This, If you're looking for something you want to go back and meditate on like the the, the heart of murder, um, go back this week and just give yourself to thinking about James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. But one thing, he raises a question, a really provocative question in James 4. He says, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? How would you answer that question? You know, a lot of times it could be like, well, it's when my spouse does this. That's what causes, it's when my children do that. That's what causes, you know, it's when my coworker acts like this. You know, these kind of things. But James says, you know, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, you have warped desires in the heart. And the fact that you're acting out in the ways that you're acting, all of these different emotions that you're displaying in this moment, uh, most of them are a signal to you, a signal that one of your idols is being attacked. And you don't like it. You don't like your idol being attacked, and so you're trying to defend your idol. And you'll do it very courageously, taking a strong stand. This is what we do with the idols of the heart. Often we're trying to protect something and, and someone is getting in the way of what we really want. And we're upset about it and we're willing to do whatever it takes to be able to keep doing what we're doing or do what we want. Sometimes those are inherently sinful things and sometimes those things are good things, but they become inordinate desires. They're out of control. They become way too important. But God wants to reveal this to us that so much of this anger, these fights, these quarrels, some of us lash out in more overt ways. Some of us just stew inside and act in passive aggressive ways. But it's anger in the heart. And Jesus wants us to see that murder is not only the unlawful taking of a life, but also the dangerous attitudes that darken the heart. Can I say that one more time? Murder is not only the unlawful taking of a life, but also the dangerous attitudes that darken the heart. And they do darken the heart, don't they? These attitudes, they just cast the shadow over the heart. We start operating, they start living in the shadows, and God wants us to call, wants to call us out of it. And I was thinking about David Pallison's book, Good and Angry. This might be one that, that we want to pick up. Uh, his book, Good and Angry, and in chapter 2, the title of the chapter is, Do You Have an Anger Problem? And it's very clever. The answer in the chapter is one word. 
Yes. Next chapter, <laughs> moving on. And it's just to make the point that at one level, all of us have an anger problem, right? We do. Just admit it, you know? I would definitely be the first one to admit, yeah, I get angry and sometimes they're at the most, the silliest little things. You know, it, it, it scares me sometimes that I can just be angry about something so stupid. Um, and, uh, and it might not look like full lashing out, but you know, and it's anger in the heart if we're being honest. And, uh, anger left unconfessed or unchecked or unchallenged is a dangerous thing. That's one of the biggest things we can take away practically in this sermon. This anger in the heart is seed form murder. It is seed form murder and it is in it itself is a degree of murder. And as we think about how dangerous it can be, how harboring these things and letting anger brew in the heart, holding on to resentment or unforgiveness, how these things are like a fire in us that is waking, waiting to break out. We are, by harboring these things and leaving them unchecked, unchallenged, unconfessed, by letting them fester in the darkness, we are one step closer to a murderous action. This is true. This is true. Remember Cain. Right? Right? The, he, his brother, Abel, offers a sacrifice to God. He's, he's envious of him and, and the fact that God received, uh, Abel's sacrifice and not his and he's resentful, right? So you can envy one another, right? And then it can turn into this low-grade resentment that left unchecked can grow and grow and grow like anger. And it ended up with him killing his brother, Abel, the first murderer in the Bible, cold blood. But it came because there's a, there's passions are at war within him. It came out of his heart. And it grew up into full-fledged, first-degree murder. So remember Cain as we think about this sermon. So in summary, murder is the unlawful killing of a person. And that unlawful killing can be carried out with various degrees of intent or with no intent at all. And um, and sometimes it can come out in sad and often deeply regretted acts of negligence. But we must never forget that Jesus clearly taught that murder is not merely an external event, but also an attitude of the heart. Murder comes out of the heart and heart murder is itself a degree of murder in God's eyes. So if you think about a spectrum, you got on the one hand, first degree, cold-blooded murder. On the other side of the spectrum, you have this heart murder. But all of it is part of the same spectrum and all of it is um, worthy of judgment in God's eyes. And so I've said and tried to breathe us through this exercise to think a little more deeply about what murder is. But that should drive us to say, well, why is it wrong? Because we haven't really answered that question. We just intuitively know this, um, you know, in part because we've, We've inherited a very good heritage that's given us this kind of moral framework, but on part we know it from God's word, but we didn't want to think hard about why. Why is it wrong? Let me tell you why it's wrong. It's wrong because murder is wrong because God is the giver and sustainer of life, and he deeply and uniquely values human life. He deeply and uniquely values human life. He cares about all of his creatures. 
right? Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from him knowing of it. He cares for his creatures. Um, he opens his hands and satisfies the desires of all living things. You know, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills and feeds them. You know, like he cares. He cares about creatures. Um, it makes me think of the end of the book of Jonah that just so masterfully describes the mercy of God. Like the last line in, in there is not only are there, you know, like 120,000 persons that are, are lost and in need to, need to repent in turn, but even much cattle. Like there's cattle there. God even cares about the cattle, but he doesn't care about them in the same way to the same degree. God created all things. Yes. They are good, yes, but he created human beings in his own image and likeness, and he has a particular care, and there's a particular value that he places on human beings as our creator and as our sustainer. And think about how much he values us when you think of a text like Psalm 139, right? Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18, go back and meditate on that. This language of that God that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we were knit together in our mother's wombs, right? I've preached on that just a little while back and talked about it. Like, it's like God's art studio. It's like no art that he's ever done. He pours so much of it and his perfection into creating these, and he does it in the secrecy, that dark, hidden, intimate, warm place of a mother's womb. God is doing a knitting work there, and he's proud of it. So we ask questions to massage that in our heart, like, how well does God know us? Right? How well does God know us? How involved has God been in our lives from the very beginning? Right? What interest has he shown in our lives? God cares about every human life. But we take that a step further and realize that it's wrong, not just because God cares about human life and is assigned a general value, but that value is, is that he has made every human being uniquely in his image, to be like him, to reflect his character, his glory. So listen, make this connection now to how God values human life and the strong statement in Genesis 9, verse 6. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God made man in his own image, and he takes that image so seriously that if there's another man that so devalues his image by murdering somebody, God's saying their own blood should be shed. Now, one could almost argue like, well, doesn't that devalue it? No, it shows everybody how seriously God takes his image in human beings. He cares about his image. And we're meant to see in that verse just how, how serious he is about his image. God is offended when people are treated as if they are of no more value than a beast. God is offended. I remember watching these videos. I think it was like Ray Comfort going out, you know, he's evangelist, sharing the gospel with people and and he would ask the question to people on the street, Mike in front of their face, like, okay, so if, if, a, if a stranger, a perfect stranger that you've never met, um, uh, you see them in danger and you see the family dog in danger, you know, one of them is going to die and you have to save one, which one would you save? You know, in one sense, you almost want to laugh. It's not funny. Something is deeply broken when we value a beast over a human being uniquely made 
in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God, and God is offended when they're not treated like that, like they are deserving of such value. You know, I said last week when I was specifically directing some of my speech toward children, and I made the comment on that on the command, honor your father and your mother. And I told the children in this room, and I said, when you, when you disrespect or don't listen to your mom or your dad, you aren't just disrespecting mom and dad. You are disrespecting God, right? It's a really important thing to be kept, to, to recognize. When we devalue the image of God in human beings, we are devaluing God himself. In one sense, we are shaking our fist at heaven and saying, you are not valuable to me. Which is a problem when he happens to be the most valuable being in existence. He cares about his image. He values it. He has a vested interest in it. God has good reason to be angry when people devalue his image. His wrath is totally justified. Murder and hate have dark origins. And when we adopt them, we are not taking after God. We're taking after someone else. Do you have any guess who that might be? John eight forty four tells us when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, if the shoe fits, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. There's dark origins to murder. There's dark origin to lies. You can trace it back to the evil in our souls. But it's a fearful thing to look more like him than the God of light. Sobering thought from the book of Revelation that the devil, right, the one who's been a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies, he's going to end up in the lake of fire. It says in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. But so will all those who follow in his murderous ways, regardless of the degree of murder. Will you let that land? When it says murders will be thrown into the lake of fire, It's not just talking about people who kill people in cold blood. It's not just talking about serial killers or people who do mass bombings or crash planes into buildings. This is talking about people who harbor anger in the heart. The hard truth is that the law exposes us. The bad news is that we are in this moment in a room full of murderers. You usually think you'd have to go into like, uh, you know, uh, you know, a prison, you know, a high security prison to be in a room full of murderers. Look around. If we take the Bible's teaching on what murder is seriously, we are, you could say, in a room full of murderers. We have all broken the sixth commandment. We are all guilty of some degree of murder, and that is all it takes to incriminate ourselves. The bad news is, just as the blood of Abel cried out in judgment against Cain, so too God's word, his law, cries out in judgment 
against us. But the good news is this. There is blood that speaks a better word. The writer of Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is good news for every person who has seen themselves to be a murderer at heart, in the heart. (laughs) There is blood that speaks a better word. Never was a murder more heinous and unjust than when Jesus was put on the cross. Never was there a human life more worthy of value. On the cross, Jesus took the place of every murderer who would turn from his angry ways. This is good news when we understand how deep murder goes. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks an eternal life-giving word for people like us. The blood of the innocent one is our place of refuge. That's why we love to sing songs like nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, a room full of murderers and enemies has become a room full of saints and friends. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are not destined for a lake of fire, but eternal life in a world of love. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, no matter what others may do to our bodies, they cannot take away eternal life from us. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been given a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Which leads us to one final question. We talked about what murder is, right? We talked, importantly, about why it's wrong. Talked about the remedy for it. Now, how can we avoid it, right? So if we understand it in all of its textures, all the variety, all the different ways murder can come about in the spectrum, how do we avoid it? And I want to close by answering that question for us. Here you go. Number one, we can avoid it by recognizing and valuing the image of God in man. You know, usually what happens when it comes to murder of different forms is we lose sight of how valuable human beings are precisely because they're made and stamped in the image of God. Think about a father that goes to a water park with his children and he sees a Down syndrome boy there playing and seeing other kids making fun of him. And he turns to his children and says, kids, listen to me. You see that boy over there? Do you know what makes him so special? Like, he is made in the image of God. And then the dad walks over there and goes and talks to those kids that are talking to this boy and explains to them the value of the life that they're picking on right now. But you have to have convictions. We have to have convictions about the value and the, and the sacredness and the sanctity of every single human life. And so part of that is we want to be careful, don't we, not to desensitize ourselves to the value of the image. I mean, there's things that we can watch. There's things that we can listen to. There's games that we can play that just take the snuffing out of human life and image bearers of God just lightly. Do not think 
that that doesn't wear on your mind and on your conscience. It takes a very serious intake of scripture and truth to have rock solid convictions that will actually have us rise up in moments that will recognize the value of image bearers. Moments that count a ton, but even the little moments throughout the day, in the home, and among other people, believer and unbeliever alike, to value the worth of every human being. Christians should be known for recognizing the sanctity of every single human life. You know, people live and die not recognizing how valuable they are. Makes me think of that Christmas hymn, The Soul Finds Its Worth. Christ had to come to help us recognize and re-recognize the value of a human life. And I hope that this sermon will go a long way in just helping us, you know, recalibrate our minds and consciences on these things. That every single person is so intrinsically valuable that we would not take their lives lightly. To think about just being angry at an image bearer of God, you know, and harboring things against an image bearer of God. Doing things to harm, little or big, an image bearer of God. This is so Serious and so dishonoring to the God who has made people in his image. And so let's not be desensitized. Let's do all that we can to heighten our awareness of the value of every human being, to recognize and value the image of God in man. Number two, we can avoid murder by being careful about who we let influence us. I added this one because I think it's one that um, sometimes I, I don't even think about a lot. And uh, Proverbs 22, 24 to 25 says this, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. I learned this kind of uh, <laughs> the hard way before I ever learned this proverb. Um, but I just remember a friend in high school who had like all of us, but probably a little more pronounced because it was so obvious, an anger problem. And I noticed even later in life, just certain mannerisms that would come out in me. And I just remember going, wow. And then I read this proverb and I'm like, yeah, be careful. If we're just around, the main influencers in our life are just angry people. Be extremely watchful and discerning. discerning. Next, we can avoid murder by working hard and praying often for a meek and humble spirit that is not easily offended. One sign that there is a meek and humble spirit is that we're not easily offended. God wants us to have thicker skin, not because we're calloused in heart and we don't care. You know, We want to have, in one sense, the, the skin of an elephant or a rhino, but the heart, just so tender. You know, a Tender heart, thick skin. That's what we want. We don't want to be easily offended. So we want to pray like crazy that God would help us to have this meek and humble spirit where we're not easily offended. Proverbs twelve sixteen. This is one I've been thinking about lately. It says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The vexation of a fool is known at once. Like, he just immediately agitated when someone does even the smallest thing. The scriptures tell, that's a mark of a fool. I don't want to be that. <laughs> Lord, help me. You know, when someone says something that's offensive to me or does something that's hurtful to me, help me not to be easily angry. Help me to be able to ignore an insult, 
take a punch, you know. Or Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. It's a sign of virtue to be able to overlook offenses. And we're going to go on to talk about, well, what, what happens if something is so pronounced that you can't just keep overlooking, right? Well, there's biblical instruction for that, but just to say that there, we want to labor and pray for this meek and humble spirit to be over, overlook offenses and not be too easily disrupted. And I was really helped, and some of us in our um, Sunday school class were talking about Jonathan Edwards as we we're walking through church history. But he had—he was famous for in a lot of things, but one of them was the resolutions that he wrote. Um, these things, resolve to fill in the blank, and he kept these resolves, um, some like seventy of them, till um, the last like month of his life. And one of his resolves has really struck, stuck with me. And, and that resolve is basically when he sees anything odious, that was the term that he used back in the day, um, for anything that's unbecoming, anything that's distasteful, anything that he doesn't like in somebody else, he says that he would search out any trace of it in his own heart. So to develop a mental and a heart discipline of going, huh, I don't like that. Instead of dwelling on what you don't like in another person, take the time to trace out any part of it in your own heart. It's a really good um, it's a really good way to cultivate humility in the heart because often is the case, at least I find this, if there's something I really don't like in someone else, it's usually because there is a trace of it in my own heart that needs to be dealt with. Next, we can um, avoid murder by thinking often about just how patient and forbearing God has been with us even though we have so often grieved him, remembering that because of Jesus, he does not deal with us according with our sin, according to our sins. So just taking the time, and I've, I've, I've talked to enough of us to know that I think God allows this reflex, you know, in, in our lives, and I pray that it will be the case more and more, where when we're tempted just being patient or irritable with others, that we would stop and just think about how unbelievably patient God is with us. I mean, if anybody should be justified in impatience, it's God being impatient with us because we screw up all the time, right? We often do things that grieve his heart, but he doesn't forsake us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't, he's not passive aggressive toward us, right? Like in Revelation, he's the one knocking at the door saying, I want to have fellowship with you, so would you lay down your anger? You know, would you quit clinging to your resentment? I want to have fellowship with you. You can't have both. And I want you to have fellowship with me because it's going to cure your soul. And it's going to help you flourish. So let's think much about God's patience toward us. And let us let that gospel reality for us warm our hearts toward fellow sinners and strugglers and give us grace to forbear with others. Next, we avoid murder by giving the benefit of the doubt to others and their motives. Often resentment grows because we're not giving, we, we'll, we want people to give us the charitable judgment, but we don't want, want to give the charitable judgment to others. Like we're withholding the very thing we demand of others. And God is wanting us more and more to give them benefit of the belt. Love believes all things. There's just a certain sense of you're going to assume the best um, in people, which is easier said than done, isn't it? Uh, to give that benefit of the doubt. Um, but it makes me think of Jesus' words on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. 
like when someone does something to hurt us, that we would have more of that impulse. Like they don't, they're they're ignorant of what's happening right now. They're not doing this necessarily out of malice. You know, they might be, but you're trying your best to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like this is a mental heart exercise here. We want to we want to nurture that in our hearts, and in a sense of like they must not have meant anything by that. You know, um, I think that that kind of charitability will go a really long way in our relationships and a really long way in killing the root, the seed of, of murder in the heart. Next, we can kill murder by diligently rooting out all bitterness. So anger and hatred in the heart or envy that leads to resentment. So in other words, let's be quick to weed the garden of the heart. These things come up. We have to you have to de-weed it right away. We want to weed the garden and don't let these things grow because they will take over the garden of our hearts. Don't we know it? We do know it. This is exactly what weeds want to do. Building on that, we avoid murder by not letting the sun go down on our anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is so important. If we do that, as A.W. Pink put it, the scum of malice will be on your heart till next morning. You'll wake up and the scum of malice will be on your heart. It's true. It's a miserable feeling, isn't it? If you dishonor the Lord in that way and you won't take him at his word and you sleep on it and you stew on it, you wake up the next morning, you feel like, don't fill in the blank. Okay? You don't feel good, right? God's designed for our flourishing. He's given us his word for our flourishing. And he knows what he's talking about. He knows the danger of this because he knows us better than we know ourselves. So one of the ways we deal with it early is not letting the sun go down on it. Not letting the sun rise another day on such darkness. We want it to be dealt with early. So take God at his word. Trust him more than you trust your own emotions. couple more. We avoid murder by shunning all thoughts of revenge. Shunning all thoughts of revenge. God's word says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands and equal the score. No, we leave it to the Lord and we go on meekly following Jesus Christ. Shun all thoughts of revenge. It's not justified. Finally, we avoid murder by promptly pursuing reconciliation by promptly. We put this in our membership covenant that we will promptly pursue reconciliation. We recognize conflict will happen, right? It will happen between Christians. It will happen between people who have the spirit of the living God dwelling in their hearts, right? But God's word tells us we are to promptly pursue reconciliation. Listen to Jesus. And fittingly, these verses from Matthew 5, 23 to 26, I'm about to read you, These are the verses that come as basically the conclusion, the remedy to the murder in the heart that he just got done exposing, right? You've heard that it was said of old, but I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother, right? So dealing with the heart anger, that heart murder, how do you deal with it? Jesus says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you or you have something against him, you could put it both ways, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, 
you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus says, promptly pursue reconciliation. There's something so powerfully redemptive about this. If we feel something in our hearts, things are not right, and we're not able to overlook an offense, we need to take wise, godly, strategic action to go pursue this. You might not even have all the right words, but you pray like crazy, search your own heart first, you know, have a humble posture and go and try to work it out and let God work through two spirit and dwelt Christians to work it out and to reconcile. And there'll be a redemptive moment there on the horizon. In so far it's possible, live at peace with everyone. If so, in so far as it's possible, live at peace with everyone. And this is one way we do it by promptly pursuing reconciliation. So I close with a verse that really, I think, captures the spirit of what God wants for us. Instead of trying to murder people, here's a better route. First Peter chapter three, verses eight and nine. Then we're going to go to a time of corporate prayer. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Amen. Can we turn now to the Lord? Let's respond to his word that we have just heard, this word on murder in all of its depths. And um, he showed us Christ from his word. And so let's take time now to respond to him. And uh, I want to encourage us, if we can, pray loud enough where others can hear and be edified by what's being spoken. Utter our amen in agreement with our brothers or sisters that are praying. And um, also, I want to encourage us, we are not looking for long, eloquent prayers right now. Just short biblical prayers to express our hearts to God and build up the body of Christ. This is a time of edification where we pour our hearts out before the Lord because he is, in the blood of Jesus Christ, a refuge for us. So let's pray and then I'll close us. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word. Thank you for each of these brothers and sisters and friends here uh, today. And I thank you, Lord, that you hear our cries. And um, Lord, you go to work on our hearts. And I want to specifically, Lord, pray for those whose passions are at war in them right now. Lord, knowing that anger and resentment, bitterness is so dangerous if it's left unchecked. But God, it's so hard sometimes to fight. And so, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help brothers and sisters overcome these strong passions and desires in their hearts that are warped and and leading them to dark places. God, I pray that you'd give grace to walk in the light. Give grace to open the door through confession and repentance and be able to have renewal, that you'd bring healing to their bones and refreshment, Lord, that is needed so much right now. God, I've needed it so much at different times, and I know others are here right now and need it deeply. So God, work in power. We cry out for brothers and sisters that are stuck right now. God, work by the power of your spirit, spouses that are stuck right now, parents and children that are stuck right now. Lord, even, um, Lord, for grace to love our enemies. Oh, Lord, would you pour out grace upon your church? God, would you give us spiritual strength to do your will? Thank you for the blessing of gathering with your body of believers. Thank you for the blessing it is to pray and be edified in prayer together. Send on your word. And now, Lord, that we get to give vent to our hearts in song. Would you bless this? Would you anoint this time? For your glory in Jesus' name, amen.